Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to the 100th episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Lily CBD. This is it. This is the 100th episode. I never even imagined we'd get to this point and have this many episodes, but we did, and I'm so, so, so glad that you've joined us along the way. As you know, this will be the last episode of Made Visible, maybe forever, maybe temporarily, but thank you so much for being a listener and supporter of the show. It truly means the world to me. The first Made Visible writing class is just a few days away. So if you're interested in joining us, please head to harperspiro.com slash Made Visible writing class. In this six-week class, we'll use personal essay writing as a way to understand our experience with invisible illness and share those experiences with others. Class will feature published authors who were featured on Made Visible over these last 100 episodes. On Monday nights, we'll meet on Zoom for 75 minutes to hear from each author. We have limited spots remaining, so please head to harperspiro.com slash class to apply as the class starts on Monday, November 2nd. And now, on to today's guest. The tables are being turned, and my dad, Harry Spiro, is going to be interviewing me for the 100th episode. Welcome, Dad. Well, welcome, Harper, actually. Thank you for coming to my podcast today. <laughs> uh, I'm very excited that I'm doing this on your 100th episode. We've been talking about this for a while. So let, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, as you know, I was a reluctant parent. I wasn't looking forward to having children. But when you came by, it was the absolute greatest thing that ever happened to me. I had previously didn't think that I was mature enough or that I'd be able to care for a child. Uh, thankfully, we had your mother involved because she was the dominant parent. And she actually took off the first five years of her life to bring you up. So basically, the support system was as follows. She took care of you. I took care of her when necessary. And uh, you guys took care of me all the time. <laughs> So let's fast forward to, you know, it was right before your second birthday. I'm in the middle of watching a very important football game. It's a playoff game with my beloved Cleveland Browns at that time. And they're playing the Jets. And you've got this thing developing above your ear that's about the size of a small egg or a lemon. It had been developing for about a day. And uh, this game is a very critical point. It's in overtime. And your mom is saying, you know, we really need to go to the hospital. We need to see what's going on with Harper. And I said, can we just wait till the end of the game? <laughs> I, think, I, I think that was the last time that regarding your health, that nothing became more important than your health. Because we took you and, and found out that uh, nobody knew what was going on. You were less than two years old. And you're in this hospital. And you've got this egg coming out of the back of your ear. And we honestly don't know if you're going to live or die. And the people in the hospital had no idea what it was. We were there for two weeks. It's something that I'll never forget. I had a thing on my head that was a vice for those two weeks. We slept in the hospital. We alternated evenings. Um, they didn't know what to do, but finally they drained it. And that was the beginning of finding out that you had 
eczemas, and that these were going to be recurring in your life. Obviously, you're too young to have remembered anything like that, but that was the beginning of us recognizing that something was up. And intermittently, things took place with these eczemas. Um, you had earaches. What was the first thing that you recall as a child that something was uh, wacky in your system, which obviously you didn't recognize as being wacky. You recognize as being, hm, this is what I'm living with. Well, I wouldn't say that I didn't recognize it being wacky because I knew that my friends weren't going through these things. Um, I don't know if there was one thing. I think it's just like a handful of what felt like abnormalities of my skin being different and always having skin issues. And for whatever reason, my nail stuff was really something that like sticks in my mind, which I know comes a little later of losing my nails because they were all like fungus and just constantly having band-aids on my fingers and being in a doctor's office and them sort of looking at it grossed out. What age was that? It's probably pre-teens. I mean, yes, I remember things happening earlier, but it all just sort of feels like lumped together as skin issues, eczema, you know, just trying to figure out what was going on. But as we've discussed, and as we discussed on the episode with mom, mom was really the leader in figuring out what doctor, what healer, what specialist to go to that we never really, I, I didn't know where to search. There was no internet then. So I just did what mom suggested. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned that you noticed this early on. It was preteens. Did you look at other kids and say, they don't look like me? They don't have things that I have? Or did you identify other people who might have had issues that were similar to yours prior to 11 years old? I was aware that I looked differently and that I had different issues going on that no one I knew did. And walking down the street, I didn't see other people that looked like me and my friends didn't have what I was going through. And what obviously I've made very clear on the show is that I didn't talk to anybody about this. So it's not like I tried to find any kind of support or anyone out there who was going through similar things. I didn't know anyone with eczema and I wasn't looking for anyone with eczema because I just wanted to live my life. So in doing so, you know, we have ways as human beings of having issues in our heads that aren't first and foremost a part of our uh, everyday, where did this settle in the back of your head at age nine, at age 10, at age 11? Where was this in terms of you're doing homework, you're socializing, you're watching TV? Where, where did this land? I don't think it played a huge role in my everyday actions because it didn't really prevent me from living life. You know, Sure, when I was two years old, I was in the hospital for a few weeks, but that's a completely different time that obviously I don't remember. There isn't really a time that I think it stopped me from living my life, doing what I wanted, go to school, have friends. I was always social. It wasn't like there was a real outcast situation. I mean, yes, there was bullying from certain friends and stuff growing up, but that was sort of like just nature of being young. And it didn't feel at that time like it was specific to me being different. Yeah. So you're young at that point. At what point did the acknowledgement take place? So let's go to pneumonia. You were 11 when you had pneumonia. That had to be a demarcation point. I don't remember it that much. I mean, it's one of those things where 
you did a really good job when I was growing up at taking tons of video and photos of my childhood and my life more than anyone I know has documented. And as much as my mom hated the camera in her face and I definitely loved it, the moments in the hospital, you know, I can picture some of the photos from that time of you capturing those moments. And that's how I sort of remember it. It's just like this moment that happened that clearly something was going on. But again, I had just been diagnosed when I was 10 with Job syndrome. And then this happened when I was 11. It was the first sort of big thing that happened. I I couldn't tell you what my friends knew, how they knew, how I felt about it. Too young at that point. So you're constantly going to doctors. You're going to skin doctors. You're going to healers. You're going to all kinds of different people at this time. And you were being poked and you were being prodded. And at one point, we hit the magic moment where we meet Charlotte Cunningham Rundle's who acknowledges the fact that what you have is something that's called Job's syndrome. And at that moment, all the bells went off. What happened next for you? Was there something specific that happened? I think it was one of those things, which I know many listeners can relate to, of this felt like an amazing thing to have a name for, but she made it very clear that she didn't have any further information for us. We didn't have any more this medication is going to heal you. There's a cure to this. Here's how you're going to treat it and everything will be fine. There were so few people with the condition at that time. Not that there's that many more now, but we have some information now that we definitely didn't then. So I think to me, it was like, okay, cool. We have this name that's helpful, but they suggested that I went down to the NIH and I refused to do that because I did not want to continue being a guinea pig and getting poked and prodded any more than I already was in New York. I had some sort of idea that by going there, this was going to turn into something bigger than it was. Yeah, that was kind of interesting that here you had some knowledge, you had a gateway and you chose not to take it. Why do you suppose you chose not to take it? I understand not wanting to be poked and prodded. Why do you suppose you didn't take it? How old were you? 11, 12? 10. You were 10. That's pretty young to be able to make a decision. And that's the one thing that we allowed you to do. That anything that you didn't want to do, you didn't do. And that was the end of that conversation. And that was the beginning of me understanding how resilient you were as a human being. That's pretty young to have those feelings. I attribute that to both of you and you guys paving that way and being my role models you know, throughout my life and saying, here's how we're going to do things. And here's where you have choices. I think at that point, it goes back to really just wanting to be as quote unquote normal as possible. And by going and traveling somewhere and having to say to my friends, oh, I'm going to DC because I'm going to go be poked and prodded. I was able to hide it when I was younger because it was an after school going to the doctor or going to a healer kind of thing. And a trip, a several day thing was not a vacation. And the big thing is I get asked a lot, was I intentional with my hiding and not sharing? And I think it just became so normal to me to just, you know, pretend that it didn't exist. I didn't say, okay, I'm going to tell so-and-so that this is what's going on, but it's a lie. I don't think I lied. I think I just chose not to disclose information. 
because a lot of it was skin related, although physically it was uncomfortable and I didn't like how it looked, how I looked, it didn't get in the way. So unless it got in the way and stopped me from doing anything, I said, let's just keep moving forward. And when eczema or rashes or ear infections or whatever it was came up, I dealt with it and basically put a Band-Aid on it emotionally and physically. Wow. So how did that affect your socialization, particularly with boys in high school and college? It didn't exist. It wasn't something that I allowed myself to partake in because I didn't see myself as someone that was um, worthy of being wanted. I think that I saw my friends and all of them, no matter how attractive they were, they were all more attractive than I was. And at that age, especially middle school, high school, it's, you know, it's a popularity contest. It's all about how you look and how cool you are. It's not that you're like smart or whatever it is. Those are not the things that matter. So for me, for sure, it was like I didn't even exist in those times. And I was aware for sure that other friends of mine were dating or, you know, whatever that looks like in those younger years that are somewhat silly. I didn't have that because I didn't allow myself to partake in it. Yeah. By the way, you're not alone in those kind of feelings with anybody. Other people feel that way and they don't have anything near the kind of situation that you had. So you're clearly not alone as a human being there. Um, let's fast forward to a demarcation point, And that was when you had your operation 2012. You were 27 at that time. Why don't you take us up to the steps before that took place? So in 2011, in October, I started a new job that was super high stress and I was working crazy hours and I would walk two city blocks. And after two blocks, something was going on with my lungs. I felt like I was going to collapse. I was going to fall and I needed to either pause and stand on the street or sit on a bench or jump in a taxi. Uh, I lived in an apartment building where I was on the third floor and I typically walked up the stairs when I got up to the third floor, I collapsed on my couch. And this went on for months. I went to my general practitioner who told me that she believed that I had bronchitis or pneumonia, or maybe both. She gave me a bunch of drugs and inhalers and none of them worked. And that lasted for about three months until absolutely nothing changed. And I couldn't breathe normally. And it was clear something else was going on. And that's when my mom said, it's time to see a specialist. We need to get a referral from someone and see a pulmonologist. Had you gone to the NIH at this point? I forget. No, they were nowhere in my life. I didn't even think about them past that few months after meeting Dr. Cunningham Rundles. Okay. So went and saw Dr. Gail Shatner, who became a leading part in my life. And she did a x-ray blood work and CAT scan. We immediately got the results of the blood work and the x-ray, which were totally normal. And my mom and I stood in the office hysterically crying, so thrilled. But I knew something else was going on. This was not the end of it. And the next day she called and asked me if I was with my parents. It was a Saturday morning. And she asked if I was with you guys. And I said, no, I knew you guys were at the gym. Mm. I called you and called you and you guys didn't answer. And I called her back and she asked if I was sitting down. 
which I know a lot of people, listeners have heard things like this or experiences themselves of like, what are you going to tell me that I need to be sitting down? And she said, you have a cyst the size of a golf ball in your right lung and you need to have surgery immediately. And that's all I remember. That's all I know that she said. If she kept talking, I didn't hear it. Yeah, I remember where we heard that and how we heard that and everything that took place in those ensuing weeks. But what I remember more than anything else was a moment in my life that was uh, one of the two or three most significant moments in my life, including your birth. And that was the night before the operation. Do you remember what happened that night? My memory was I came over to your apartment because I decided I was going to sleep at your apartment instead of my apartment because it was closer to the hospital and I was a mess and wanted your support. And I remember lying on the couch with my head in your lap, just being hysterical, like sobbing uncontrollably and you telling me everything is going to be okay. And I said, how do you know that? It was the toughest single moment of my life of hearing you say those words and me just comforting you, continuing to comfort you and saying, because I know it will, because of who you are, because of who we are. And you've gotten through everything to this point, and this isn't going to be any different. And I had no more knowledge of anything outside of the conviction of who you were and who we were as a family and knowing that you were going to get through it. And that next day, when you went in there and, you know, I watched every second tick by on the clock like I've never seen before. And, you know, we had heard that there was a possibility of you not coming out of there. There was a percentage that they gave us that you might not survive this operation. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing with that is a few weeks before surgery and after meeting this amazing pulmonologist, we did go to the NIH for the first time. And they were the ones that were saying, this is extremely risky, but it needs to be done because there's no other way to deal with this situation. So we were given that warning and we're still told you should really move forward with this. And we were all in agreement that this needed to happen. So for you to say, you know, you had to comfort me, but you also didn't know the information. I knew that, you know, I wasn't 10 years old and (laughs) able to think that well, but I was 27 at the time. And it was like, you're saying all these things and it's really nice, but you have no freaking clue. Like, how are you supposed to know? But no, but you're doing your job and you're doing what you can to make me feel at ease knowing that I'm going in and I'm doing this. Yeah. So obviously you're sitting here today. Obviously it all worked out. And obviously you've turned into this human being who's just, I don't know, I I can't say enough about it. Um, Go ahead. Well, you know, (laughs) let, let me just say this. As a kid, you were disappointing to me in one very major way. And you know what I'm going to say here, that you weren't curious. Your cousins were curious. Other friends were curious. You just showed no curiosity. You know, I saw your sense of humor. I saw your love of music. I saw your hate of baseball. <laughs> um, that's a whole other story. But um, but you didn't show any curiosity towards anything. And it was very upsetting to me because it was important that you go out into the world once we let you fly, once those wings are taken away, when you went to college and even when you went to camp, that curiosity was important. And then something hit. I don't know what hit 
but you became one of the most curious people on the planet. Where did interest in other things take place? All of a sudden, you were interested. You developed a drive. You developed a drive possibly when you were in college. And at one point, you realized that you wanted to become an entrepreneur. And you went through, you know, eight, nine jobs in 10 years, finding out exactly what you didn't want to do. While the entire way, you said, I want to run my own business. I want to do my own business. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Lily CBD. Lily CBD is organically grown and an everyday essential to help you feel alive. Russell Marcus was a guest on episode 51 of the show and spoke about the value that CBD had on his mom's health while managing chronic pain. Over the last year, I've been regularly using Lily CBD at night, shortly before I go to bed to calm my nerves, and I see that it really helps relax me. I even love the taste. Head to lilycbd.com and use code MADEVISIBLE, one word, at checkout for 15% off. That's lilycbd.com, code made visible, one word, at checkout for 15% off. Now, back to the show. Your extracurricular thing in high school was what? What did we call that thing? I started the community service the club. community service. So that was the beginning of something for you. That was after 9-11. So I think that is a crucial time that, you know, we were so close to 9-11 living downtown and it really hit me and hit us as a family and us as a city and us as a nation that it made me recognize, like, I've got to play some role here. And so I, along with a teacher of mine, started a community service club, knowing that we had to do 60 hours of community service, but people weren't interested in it. It was like, a, oh, I have to do it thing. And I enjoyed doing it and seeing the way that people interacted and the way that you could help people and, and be of service. And I decided let's come up with ways that we were able to support other people and make it fun and do it together as opposed to, oh my God, I have to show up at 8am to this walk in Central Park for MS. That's like not fun. So that was an easy thing not to do. And that was for me, a very major point in your life of choosing to do that because nobody else at the school had done that. Well, and I think a big part of that was recognizing, obviously, that I had an interest in helping people. That was a huge thing that I learned and identified. And the other thing was, I wasn't such a great student and needed some things to get me into college and go to a college that I was excited by. I thank you for bringing that up because I didn't want to say it. (laughs) If you follow me on Instagram, you saw my report cards from a few months ago, and my parents are less than proud of that one. Yeah, I think they were hidden from us, by the way. (laughs) But I think that was a huge thing of like identifying things that I could do, I could enjoy that would help me with my, you know, college applications. I also was a secretary of student council and I played volleyball, but that was pretty meaningless. Were you voted on uh, to become secretary? I was. Okay. Well, that's that's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) See, popularity contest. Yeah, yeah, so so there was no shortage of like friends and social life growing up. Well, you've never had a shortage of friends or social life. So I think another thing past 9-11 was going to college and meeting all these different people from different backgrounds. A lot of my closest friends were people from 
New Jersey and Boston and Connecticut and Long Island. But I just saw different ways of people living. And I think a big thing that came out of that was after college, not knowing what I wanted to do exactly in my life, except for being interested in the communications field because you were in advertising and there was something compelling about that that the PR world was interesting. And I started taking on these different jobs in PR and marketing and events. And, you know, as you said, going through eight jobs in 10 years and always looking for something bigger, better, better product, better team, something more meaningful and not really being fulfilled in whatever it was and wanting to explore something else. I think the entrepreneur bug really came from you of seeing that you could, you know, do things yourself. I definitely recognized certain bosses that I liked and didn't like and respected or didn't respect. But there was something of, I don't really want to report to anyone and I want to do things my way. And I'm going to figure out what that looks like, whatever the business is. And as you know, there was a large period of time that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but it's not like I was sitting on a business and waiting for someone to hand me money to do it. I just didn't have the full fleshed out idea of what that business was. And I think that, you know, after college, when my cousin Corey went on birthright and went to Israel, he returned and said to me, you got to go on this trip. And I was like, why would I go on this trip? And he acknowledged it's a free trip to Israel. What else are you doing? You just graduated college. And I went and it totally changed my life of obviously falling in love with Israel in general but recognizing the value of travel and seeing other people's lives and other ways of living. Interesting. So let's move on to the IDF. So that's another major moment in your life where you took the reins there. Explain what the IDF is and what you did there. So we had John Boyle on the show, episode 81, who is the executive director of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. And that connection really started Mom got something in the mail, a flyer in the mail that to this day, she says it just showed up. She didn't sign up for it. She doesn't remember signing up for it, but it was a flyer for their conference in Baltimore, Maryland. And she and I went to their conference and it was the first time post-surgery I had come out to my friends and told them that I had Job syndrome, that I had had the surgery, obviously, because that recovery process was pretty intense. And we went to this conference, I think, to sort of see that I was not alone in what I was going through and that there were other people with immune deficiencies that were going through similar things, even if our symptoms and scenarios and diagnoses were different. And we sat in a room with a handful of other people who all had Job syndrome And my doctor from the NIH, Dr. Alexandra Freeman, who has also been on the show twice, put together a PowerPoint presentation on Job syndrome for me and the rest of the people in the room. And it was fascinating to be in a room with other people with my condition and hearing from this doctor that like all these ailments that I had, so did all these other people. And this was the normal thing to be dealing with, with Job's. So attending that was pretty interesting. Let's just talk about that for a second. Attending that was pretty interesting. And yet, how many of those people did you keep in touch with right after that took place? Zero. And these are people who had the same or as close to a situation as you did, and you chose not to talk to these people. Why? 
I think it goes back to just trying to live a quote unquote normal life and not wanting to be associated with the identity as someone with a chronic illness. I wanted to live my life and I didn't want my title to be Harper Spiro, you know, whatever my job was at that point, let's say in marketing. And also I'm someone with a chronic illness. I just didn't identify with it. Yet you've moved on in life and have done 99 episodes of a podcast where you're dealing with people with invisible illnesses. And here you are in a room with all these people who are as close to having the same illness as you. Look at yourself as going to a concert to see Alanis Morissette. For the first time, uh, you get to choose a concert that you wanted to go to, and you had chosen Alanis Morissette, and we're there, and everybody there is an Alanis Morissette fan. Everybody's as crazy as you are. You would have loved to have talked to those people, and yet here you are at this conference. I'm wondering what's going on there. I think that if it was me, and it's somebody that has the same situation that I'm in, that I would want to have some conversations. I think the fear set in, and I remember the Immune Deficiency Foundation had this like buddy system that they connected me to this one girl prior to the conference saying, she has jobs. Are you cool with her reaching out to you? And she reached out to me. And I can picture receiving these emails from her. She was so confident and it was so much a part of her identity being someone with Job syndrome. And it felt like an attack to me. Wow. And I received this email of her being like, here are all my symptoms. Here's what I'm dealing with. This is what my life looks like. And it felt like, you know, looking back, she was owning it and it was a huge part of her life. I was not. And I was intimidated by it and basically told her after she wrote me several times, please stop contacting me because I felt like she was in a different category that I didn't want to be in. This was her life. This is why I asked you earlier when you acknowledged that you had this situation that was taking place 24-7 for you, where it landed in your everyday life. And you're basically saying that you pushed it back at age 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, up to age 27. And here's a person that you're face to face with who this is what she does. This is it. She's not reading. She's not watching television. She's not socializing. She's busy being sick 24-7. And I refuse to be that way. So I saw her identity as exclusively a sick person because that's how she presented herself. She didn't say, I'm in school and studying this, or I have this great job, or I'm in a relationship. She led and only spoke about her health. And while that was the thing that we had in common, I wasn't interested. So I flat out said to her something along the lines of, I don't feel comfortable talking about this anymore. Please give me some space. I'll be in touch if I see there's a good fit. She ended up becoming a, maybe at that time it existed, I'm not sure. She started a Facebook group for people with Job syndrome. And she's sort of like the leader of the patients, as far as I know, that if I ever have a question that I don't want to just ask my doctor and want to hear from other people with the condition, I can go into that Facebook group and see what's going on. But I have remained sort of in my own little bubble of not in regular contact with these people. So the IDF, you became very big with that organization, particularly as a fundraiser. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So 
after attending the conference and seeing how many people were there with so many different conditions, they had done several walks in different states, but never did New York. And they approached me and several other people in the New York area about being part of this walk and fundraising and getting our friends and family out. And I decided this was an opportunity. I guess it's the, you know, community service club head that I was went back into check at like, let's say 28, 29, whatever that was, and decided to really spearhead this initiative. So I became the vice chair of the walk, along with Jody Taub, who has also been on the podcast. And I raised over $10,000 for the walk in a few months from friends and family. And it was the first time that I ever was really widely public about my health and talking about my health. Yes, all of my friends and your friends knew that I had had surgery and all that whole situation, but we hadn't really disclosed that much information about what I had gone through all of my life. And again, while I didn't say, don't tell anybody, I know that you didn't go telling everyone what was going on with my health for those first 27 years, especially in the younger years. Um, so the IDF, we did this walk and I spoke at an event about my experience and the meaning of the IDF. And it was the first time I was really public about it. I mean, I think a few months prior, I had written an article for Mind Body Green talking about my surgery and some basic details of that, not my best writing. But it was definitely a moment in time that I was like, okay, I'm going to come out and talk about this because it's important. Yeah. So let's fast forward to something that happened more recently, and that was the Mayo Clinic. We went with you, Mom and I, to Rochester, Minnesota, uh, booked a couple hotel rooms. Our intention was to be there for as long as five days because you were going to allow them to do whatever they needed to do to you to find out whatever they could find out. We went up there. We had very nice accommodations, and we went to see this doctor who was one of the preeminent folks on the planet and sat in a room with him for about three hours. You had done an enormous amount of homework. You had reams and reams of paper with your records from the beginning of birth. And we came out of there with, with some very good feelings. Do you remember what was going on there? So it was a year ago this week. Yeah. And we were going there because it was clear that the treatment that I was doing for my lung issues was not really cutting it. And we thought it was helpful to get a second opinion. And I'll say, I thought it was really important to get a second opinion where I love my doctor at the NIH and I love my doctor at NYU, but it felt like a good time seven years post-surgery to just sort of see, is there anyone else out there that's important to talk to that may have a new take on what I'm going through? and. As you said, this guy gave us a tremendous amount of time. Again, we were told to plan to be there for five days. And after three hours, he made it really clear that I had two of the best doctors and medical teams on the planet taking care of my case and that he really validated and confirmed that I was doing everything I could. So it was a mixture of emotions. I think on one hand, it was, wow. This guy is really confirming I have the greatest doctors in the world, which I felt but wanted to confirm and see if someone else had more information. That was very reassuring. At the same time, we traveled all this way 
to go to this appointment thinking I was going to be poked and prodded the whole time, only to find out that he doesn't really have anything more to say. So there was a disappointing aspect of it, of feeling like, how does no one else have any more information? How is everything that we have all that there is? Is there someone beyond the NIH or Mayo Clinic that has more information or is this really it? So I think it was this like every moment was differing because I was really thrilled to not be there any longer and really thrilled with this guy. And he was such a good guy. And on the other hand, it was like, but but why? Why do we not have more than this? Yeah. I guess I'll turn to you. How did you feel about that situation? I mean, we all sort of stopped our lives and changed our schedules to be down there knowing it was at least five days. What was that experience like for you? Well, I'll tell you something else about that experience in a minute. But for me, it was just about the fact that we knew that we were doing the right thing. We're so fortunate to live in New York City and be so close to D.C. or shall I say Bethesda in order to go to the NIH. It's driving distance. But we traveled, you know, to another part of the country to find out that we've been doing the right thing all along to the best that we possibly could, that we had the best care for you. But the other thing that happened that night when we came out of there was we were going to stay over in that hotel for another day and then fly out of Minnesota the next morning. But you showed this resolve that I had seen every once in a while that kind of has come to define who you are as a human being. And that resolve was we were in this nice hotel. This is very nice accommodations. And the area was very nice. And even though it's in Rochester, it didn't matter. It was it was very nice. And you also really liked the restaurant in the hotel. Yes, and looked forward to going back there again that <laughs> night. But it didn't work out that way because you had this resolve that you wanted to see these people who were in Minnesota about an hour and a half away. Now, we were going to have to go there anyway to go to the airport the next day, next morning. But you wanted to go there right then and there. And you wouldn't take no for an answer. And it was unbelievable. And, you know, here I am thinking about my child, my only child, who's gone through this incredible poking and prodding situation one more time. And what am I going to do? I want to eat at this restaurant. And I don't feel like going there. We're going to have to take an airplane tomorrow. We're going to take a trip anywhere. What was that all about? First of all, it shows the difference in our taste palettes <laughs> because you wanted to eat in this hotel restaurant that was nothing special, but you also eat hospital food when I'm in the hospital. Hey. <laughs> and I want nothing to do with that. Um, I think the big thing was, and you know, listeners will appreciate this and my editor will especially appreciate this, is that in Minnesota is where Elise, my producer and editor, lives, and I had never met her before, and I wanted to meet her. And my previous guest, episode 58, Beth Schrock, was also living there, and I wanted to meet both of them. You and memorized I- all these episodes? <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted out of Rochester. It was like Rochester equaled Mayo Clinic equaled a place I didn't need to be any longer. So there was no reason to stay there, in my opinion. And I had people I wanted to see not so far away, to your point, not really inconvenient because we needed to go there anyway. And it was a city, Minneapolis, that I'd never been to. So why not get in a few hours of exploring this new city? I don't know. I mean, I, looking back, given that it's only a year ago, 
it just feels like it's totally how I navigate life. <laughs> it's totally how you navigate life. I mean, it's the same as, you know, I asked the question, how did writing become a thing for you? It was something that I didn't think you were particularly good at. It was something that I'll take a step further. You weren't particularly good at. At one point, you thought that you actually had it nailed and you didn't. And I would constantly say to you, can I proofread your stuff? Because it really isn't that good. It needs to be redlined like crazy. And yet you were resilient. You thought this was something that you could do. What made you believe that you could do that? And by the way, you did it. Thank you. Um, I'd say that I had determination. And I think that's a huge part of who I am. When I think about the career stuff and not being happy in jobs and wanting to make a move, I look at so many of my friends who have been miserable in jobs and just sort of suck it up and keep doing it for years and years and years and complain. When I'm not happy or something's not working for me, I'm determined. And in this situation, five years ago, I randomly came across a writing class at the new school, and it wasn't that expensive, and I decided to sign up. And that was really my entry into making this a huge part of my life and focusing on it. Um, I know that writing classes in high school and in college, creative writing classes, were some of my favorite classes, but I never really took it seriously. And this one class at the new school with Nancy Kelton, where I learned writing from personal experience, just sort of opened that door to me of, this is something that I want to do, I enjoy doing. It's a huge part of how I process my emotions. And while I can be well-spoken, I think that putting things on paper has always been a really helpful tool for me. And I think it's a huge part in processing my health and the things that I navigate and just being able to get it all on paper, no matter what comes of it. Got it. And I must tell you, it's such an honor, and I'm not a big Facebook person, when you publish an article to put it up on Facebook and let the world know how proud I am of this daughter who once upon a time I thought, you know, was not a very good writer. Not I thought. She wasn't a very good writer. <laughs> so kudos to you for that one. Thanks for the support. Yeah. Why is so much of your stuff about women? And why do you interview so many women and not as many men? I mean, I don't have to go back and count the amount of men on your podcast, but I'm going to guess that it's probably less than 10. What's going on there? These aren't women's issues that you're talking about. They're issues that belong to everybody. And yet, I'm going to use the number, 90% of the people that you're talking to and all of your groups and, and everything that you're involved with is women, women, women. What's the deal? I think that men are less forthcoming about talking about their health stuff. Whether they are choosing to hide it or not, they're not as forthcoming with Number one, talking about their health story. And I think that there's less communities out there for men in general. I think that the wellness world is starting to have more men as leaders, whether it's meditation teachers or whatever it may be. But I think that there's more women in these kinds of roles. And they're who I spend more of my time with. Not even, I don't want to say not even intentionally, but a lot of the guests on the podcast are friends of mine or friends of friends or people who have submitted their information asking to be on the podcast. And very few of those people have been men. And while I would like to have had a lot more men on the show, I didn't even know where to find them. 
So, you know, I'm in certain Facebook groups and connect with other people. But yes, majority of them are women. And I was always looking for more men to talk about their health. And if I saw something on Instagram or somewhere, I definitely approach people. But it was sort of hard to find those people who were forthcoming about it. Interesting. So let's go to the present. We've been living together for seven months. We hadn't been together living for 12 months of the year since you were in high school. Um, Let me just say a few things. First of all, when you went to camp at one point, that was the first time that we were away from you. Your mom and I were away from you. And I wasn't happy about this idea. I did not want you to be out of the house. And yet I remember that first weekend that you were gone, me and your mom being downtown on the Lower East Side, holding hands, looking up at the sun, I'm saying to her, this is pretty good. I like this. (laughs) And then when you went to college and when you came back for the summers, it wasn't great for me because, you know, we were living in an apartment and I had already gotten used to life without you. And even though I loved you more than anybody in the world outside of your mom, it wasn't particularly great for me. Uh, You know, it worked out. It was fine. But here we are living together in this house, this big house now for seven months. And I know you've heard me say this. It's been one of the greatest times of my life. I mean, people are out there dying. People are sick. It's one of the most unfortunate things ever to happen in the existence of this planet. And yet I had and am having one of the best times of my life. I mean, we're out there. We're able to socialize distantly with our friends. We've done the right thing. We've managed. But because I personally have been able to be outside during this period, it's been amazing for me watching the seasons change, you know, having great weather. At the same time, the best thing that happens to me every day is when your door opens and you shout out, good morning. And it happens every day, every day. And my heart, it just, it just swells at that moment that that happens. And it's, you know, if I could just bottle that every day, it would be just, oh, it would be worth so much, so much. But I ask of you, what has it been like for you for this period? Wow, you got me emotional on that one. I didn't know. I think it's been a mix of emotions. I mean, I think the big thing is, obviously, we have such a good relationship, you and me, me and mom, the three of us together. We enjoy spending time together. I know so many people. I have so many friends who can't spend a large chunk of time with their friends, don't go on family vacations, don't look forward to, you know, long periods of time with their family. And so for me, it's like, I know I choose in regular life pre-COVID to spend a lot of time with both of you. Yeah, let's put a pause there on the fact that we as a family go on at least two vacations a year for the last 10, 12, maybe longer years where we go to festivals. We'll go to Newport and we'll go to New Orleans. And it's something that I know you look forward to. I don't look forward to it until the day that we get on the airplane, but that's my own thing. Um, so can you get into it a little bit more? I mean, you know, first of all, the difference between you and me out here is you are working all the time because my business has been put on pause. I don't work as much as you and all my work can be done while I'm doing my three to eight mile walks a day or sitting outside. It's all phone work. I can take notes if I have to, but you have to be dedicated to being in a space. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think the big thing is in giving up my apartment in May, 
and choosing to be here with you guys and having more space than I would in an apartment, it allows us to have boundaries and not be together all day, every day. I think we would all lose our minds if we were all sitting outside all day, every day for seven months. Right. And the really good news there for all of us is because of the space that we have, we may not see each other outside of you bounding out of your room at 10 o'clock or nine o'clock or whatever time that may be. And me being present there is the fact that we're all in different spaces until dinner time. For sure. So, you know, I wake up and depending on the day, I come down to the basement and I'm in this room that you and I are recording in right now where I've set up a Costco desk with a tablecloth on it. And I sit and have client sessions and record the podcast and do work and write and do my writing class. You know, all of these things take place here. And while there are times where I'm not interacting with other people for my business, I do come upstairs and spend time outside and sit outside, go for long walks like you do. And I think, you know, to your initial question, I think it's been a mixture of things. It's been a nice somewhat pause a time to reflect on where I'm at and what I'm doing and what I enjoy. And obviously that came to choosing to put a pause or stop to the podcast as a whole. But then there's, you know, a lot of challenges that come with it of having to leave Israel as abruptly as I did to come home because it felt like the smart and safer thing to do. Uh, I'm 35 and living with my parents. And while I enjoy spending time with you guys. It's still like an interruption in my life, as we've talked about. And at the same time, it's really amazing to be able to, at this age, as an adult, spend this much time with both of you and have almost every dinner each night together and do things together in a way that we probably wouldn't be doing in pre-COVID life or post-COVID life as frequently as we have. Yeah, it's... uh... I can imagine how tough it could and should be, and yet I believe that you've managed with it so admirably. I mean, you know, you don't have moods. And I don't know. I would say that I do go through mood swings, but they sort of last for a brief amount of time. Um, You're a very positive, happy person, and don't let things really get to you, and you don't dwell on things as much as I do. That's always been the case. And so I think there have been days that are more challenging than others, weeks that are more challenging than others. But as a whole, I think that we've done a good job as a family navigating this time, knowing the amount of uncertainty and who knows when this is going to end and what the future, you know, holds. Yeah, I think we're, you know, in a good spot here. We've grown as a family through this. And I think that a lot has to be said for what you do on this podcast and the good that you bring to your constituents out there and the fact that you have become over the course of all these years, such a great communicator. So I personally want to thank you for continuing this through 99 episodes and now a hundredth episode, because it's easy to stop at any point. Nobody's telling you what to do. This has to be done. So it's a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment to me that you've done 100 episodes. I appreciate that a lot. I mean, I definitely didn't expect to get to this point. And when you said you wanted to be the guest on the 100th episode, probably 30 or 40 episodes in, it was like, all right, one day, maybe that'll happen. Like I never envisioned getting to the 100th point. So I think 
it goes back to the determination component of number one, I want to have that 100th episode with my dad, because for some reason, it can't be the 70th or the 50th. And really wanting to create this platform and continue this platform to help people share their stories, whether they are people living with invisible illnesses or caregivers or doctors or healers or people who started businesses because of invisible illness and just the importance of this. You know, I've seen competitors come out, many of them since I launched, and there's a lot of platforms out there and brands that are starting to talk about invisible illness more and more, and I'm thrilled to play a role in that. I have one final uh, thing that I'd like to bring up, and that is the fact that you're so fortunate to have the greatest mother ever on the planet. I cannot even imagine somebody else being part of your world there. But at the same time, I want to find out what it's like to have me as being the greatest father in the world. I mean, how lucky can you possibly be that you're sitting with me right now and that I am this guy? How great is that? I wish that we could bottle up your face and your body movement right now. (laughs) Oh, he loves the credit. So yes, no question. Mom is like beyond, beyond words. And again, has played a huge role as the leader, especially in the early years of all my medical stuff and really navigating things. And you play a completely different role. And that's why I think it works so well of you're the humor You're the return back to earth and like, let's focus on what the important thing is here person of priorities and focus and determination and the music component, which is like a huge part in my life and especially in healing and going through all that I've been through having music to listen to, which has always been a huge influence of my life. Thanks to you. And I think, you know, just having this relationship and this closeness that we can spend the amount of time that we do pre-COVID and obviously these days where we genuinely enjoy each other's presence. We enjoy being together and it's not a, oh, I can't wait to go home. I can't wait to get back to my apartment. I need to be with my friends. I can't stand my dad. It's just never been a way that I've functioned. So it just goes to show your character and the relationship that we've built because of that. And your phenomenal parenting, obviously. I love you, Harper. I love you too. That was so good, Dad. Woo! I hope you'll continue to stay in touch. You can follow me on Instagram at Harper underscore Spiro. You can email us at hello at madevisiblepodcast.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter on madevisiblepodcast.com and really stay in touch and continue listening to old episodes that you may have missed and share it with friends, but definitely stay in touch through social media and through email just in case, you know, other things get announced and we're excited to share them with you. So thank you again for sticking with us this whole time. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.